a series called Selfless. And I don't know about you guys, but it's been a real um, convicting series for me. I think I can, um, it's really easy for me to, to make way too much of myself um, more often than not. And, um, you know, for a long time, that was, that was the single driving force of my life was me. The single driving force of my life for so many years was me. And how am I going to get su- successful? How am I going to have an awesome family? How am I going to be wealthy? How am I going to have all these things? And um, I think I'm not the only one. I think, I think it's something that's part of the human experience that we all have to fight this thing. It's our pride. It's our, it's our person. It's our flesh. And so we're in this series. It's been really convicting for me. And, uh, and I've gotten a lot out of it. I hope you have too. Uh, but week one, we looked at Matthew 22, 36 through 40, the greatest commandment. Love God and love others, right? And what's assumed in, that, in, in this is that we don't need a commandment to tell us to love ourselves. <laughs> because we're pretty good at that, right? We're pretty good at that already. And week two, we looked at John 3. Church is for you, but it's not about you. Church is for you, but it's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. We saw how John the Baptist came before Jesus Christ, and he was sent to point the way, to pave the way, to make the way for Jesus Christ, to shine a spotlight on Jesus Christ. And the church exists today to do the same thing. And the question is, are we accomplishing our mission as the church? Are we shining a spotlight where it should be? Or are we shining a spotlight on ourselves? Are we making it about us? And that's, that's kind of the premise of this, is that I believe um, in the day and age of, you know, iPhones and technology and all this stuff that we've made, even church, right, our, our, our kind of narcissistic tendencies, our selfishness has actually crept into the church. We make church about ourselves. And it's all about how, you know, how God makes me feel. And it's all about what God does in my life. And, and, and I absolutely think we should celebrate those things, right? We need testimony. It's one of the things I think we don't do enough in church is celebrating what God's doing in our lives. But, man, that's not all there is to it. That's not all there is to it. Um, And so we're in this series that hopefully is is a challenge. Um, And then we saw saw, um, John the Baptist's famous statement, he must become greater and I must become less. That was really beautiful. Um, We exist for those who aren't here yet. We exist for those who are not here yet. Um, that's one of our driving initiatives at Crossroads in Garage in Young Adults. We exist for those who aren't here yet. We want to create a community where um, people who don't know Jesus can be a part of this place. They can belong before they believe. They can they can um, come hang out with us. They can be a part of our community. And as they get around Christians, as they get around believers, that, that we're just going to win them over, right? We're going to win them over through our actions, through our love, through what we've been called to do, love others, and that's what we're talking about tonight. So we're looking at the second half of the Great Commission. The first half, love God and to make Him greater in our lives. The second half is to love others and to make them greater in our lives. And I don't know about you guys, but, you know, God is huge and He's amazing and He's He created the universe and it's beautiful and, and um, you know, yes, it's hard to get my pride out of the way and things, but I, I feel like comparatively between making God greater and making others others greater, comparatively, I feel like it's easier to make God greater, right? Nobody's nobody's arguing that he's pretty darn awesome, right? 
However, making others greater, <laughs> this can be kind of hard, right? No, no matter how big my pride is, God is bigger. No matter how big my house is, God is bigger than that. No matter how big my job is, God is bigger than that, right? So it's like undeniable that he is greater. But others, that includes that person that lied to you. That includes that person that betrayed you or stabbed you in the back. Now it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard, right? Maybe it's somebody that, that um, you know, hurt you or God's calling you, burdening your heart to pray for somebody. And, and, and maybe it's difficult to pray for that person. Um, I know this week my heart has been burdened with what's going on in Afghanistan. I really felt God burdening my heart to pray for the Taliban, you know. And maybe that's kind of what you're going through. It's hard to love other people. They're the ones that have, that have hurt us, and, and, uh, and it does include our family and our friends, but those are the ones that are easy to love, right? Those are the ones that are easy to love, but God calls us to love everyone. So Jesus just raised the stakes on us. I don't know if I can love my enemy. I don't know if I can do that when I'm thinking about it. A real enemy. Can I love my enemy? And if you're here and you're thinking, yeah, that's kind of impossible, you're right. You're right. It's impossible to love your enemy in your flesh. That is why these two commandments go hand in hand, right, as we lay down our life before Christ, as we make him Lord over our lives. And he comes in, lives inside of us, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to love that kind of love. Then and only then will we find the strength, the forgiveness, the grace, the mercy to love everyone, all people. A.W. Tozer said, God is looking for people through which he can do the impossible. If we count it impossible to love our enemy, that's exactly what God wants to do through you and the world around us. Um, so a lot of you guys kind of know parts of my story. After I graduated high school, I spent 10 years, um, you know, with my own agenda. John was in control. I was going after um, success and wealth and business. And uh, it just left me a shell of a human being, um, just buried in addiction and broken relationships. It was a really painful time in my life. And I knew that God was calling me to preach I knew that God was calling me to be a pastor when I was 10 years old, and I ran away from it. And here I was, 28 years old. So almost 20 years later, almost two decades later, laying on the floor of my bedroom, drunk, finally just hands up, surrendering. And God reminded me that he, what he was calling me to so long ago, and I finally surrendered my life to him came to Colorado, and I enrolled in Bible school, and I'm sitting the very first day, the very first class, Psychology 101, my prof said, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids them come and die. When Christ calls a man or woman, he bids them come and die. And I came to Colorado, and I thought, man, <laughs> I'm here in Colorado to die to myself. To die to myself, and that was that was hard. 
when we begin to reckon with the needs of those around us, it truly is a daily dying to ourself and a deep dependency on God. We're going to look at a story tonight. Um, you guys might be familiar with it. It's the story of Nehemiah. We're going to jump into that here in just a minute. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. I think the story has a lot to tell us. It's not kind of the traditional story people go to when they are talking about loving others, right? You hear the story of the Good Samaritan. You hear all these other stories like the, guys, the guy that carried the, the paralyzed man on the mat. And, and you hear all these stories. But, you know, I saw this and I said, you know, there's something for us in this in this story in this book. So we're going to jump there in just a second. But I want to give you some background. Judah was the southern kingdom of Israel. Okay? So Israel had split. Now they had the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Judah was the southern kingdom. That's where Jerusalem was. Babylon had come in. They attacked Judah. And here's what Babylon does. The Babylonians, when they attack somebody, they take all their skilled people, all their smart people, anybody who could contribute to, to society, they take them back to Babylon. And they actually get to live there as free, but they can't leave Babylon. And they make them, like, integrate into society so it strengthens the Babylonians, right? But what they do is they leave, you know, the sick people, the, the, the elderly, the people who aren't schooled and all this stuff. They leave those folks in the land where they left their devastation, and so here, here's Jerusalem, it's been destroyed, utterly destroyed. And you have the elderly and the sick and, and, um, and, and those folks just surviving, literally just surviving. And so someone who knew that Nehemiah was in Persia, he was the cupbearer for the king, Artaxerxes, in, in Persia. They went there and they reported to Nehemiah. They said, man, we need help. There's people there. The wall has been destroyed. The enemies, the neighbors of Israel are wanting to come in. They're just, they're just there and they're vulnerable to any attack. You got to come help us. And that's where we jump into this passage. We're going to be in um, chapter 2. So in the month of Nisan, <laughs> sorry. You messed me up, dude. You got in my head. <laughs> he said Nisan, so Joe. Um, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This could be nothing but sadness of heart. I just want to pause there really quickly. Who, who is Nehemiah to the king? What is his role? He is the cupbearer. And so his job, because the kings, you know, obviously they drink wine, right? The water wasn't that great. They drank a lot of wine. And his job was to bring that to the king and taste it first. So, it, you know, if it was poisonous for any reason, you know, he would get sick and not the king. So that was his job. There was a lot of trust there. Artaxerxes trusted Nehemiah completely. And it's kind of beautiful that, that this relationship, right, Nehemiah's an Israelite, he's there, he's in Persia, he's serving the king, and he has this incredible, God has put him in this place where the, the king just trusts him um, in such a way, it's really beautiful. Jumping back in, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face 
not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. And I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take? And when we get back, it pleased the king to send me, so I set out. So he goes to Jerusalem. So Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem, and, and before we jump into that part of the story, I just want to point something out really quickly. I love verse 4. Uh, he says, then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered. And when I read about this, I was kind of like imagining the conversation as it was going. And, and uh, here, Artaxerxes, they're in the middle of a conversation. Artaxerxes asks him a question, and then it says he prayed, and then he answered the question. So how long did this prayer have to be? Pretty short, right? For him, for him to go in and, and, and pray and then answer the prayer, this had to have been a really, really fast prayer. And I just want to encourage you guys tonight, like, you know, we talked about inviting God into these parts of our lives where we're making these decisions and things like that. And I just challenge your concept of prayer a little bit. So many times I get into conversations with folks and I'm like, God, would you just be in this conversation? Like a split second. Prayers don't have to be long. They could be one sentence. Asking God, would you show up? Or God, thank you. Or God, I'm honored to, to represent you. Whatever. Whatever it is. Whatever's on your heart. Whatever you're burdened with. But I just want to challenge that notion, right, that we have, to, we have to sit a certain way. We have to do this to be able to pray. And that's just not true. And we see it right here. Nehemiah is in a conversation and he says, God, would you be here? Would you be in this conversation? Would you guide me? He, his attitude, his prayer was, I want to align my life with what you want to do through me. I think it's beautiful. So when Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, before he said anything to anyone about what God had brought him there to do, he leaves in the cover of night and he goes out and he inspects the wall. He's like trying to get an idea of how he should uh, uh, attack this project of rebuilding this wall. So the work began. I want to encourage you guys. It's you know Nehemiah is not a super long book, um, but I just want to encourage you maybe this week to go through and just read it. It's a beautiful, beautiful story, especially if you feel called to leadership. They say it's one of the best examples in Scripture of incredible, incredible God-led, Spirit-led leadership. There's incredible principles there that we can um, deduce and 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 pick out. Um, but there's a couple of chapters where it says this person did that and that person did this and this person did that. And it, and it goes on for a couple chapters and he's, he's, he's showing like everybody had a little bit to do. Everybody had a little bit. It's the perfect story of like many hands make light work, right? It's this beautiful, huge project. In fact, they did so well that this project that probably should have taken years, they built the wall in 52 days. 52 days. Like that's just mind-blowing. So the enemy, while they're building this wall, um, and Jeremy kind of talked about this in when he um, preached through this passage in, in uh, Big Church on 
couple weeks ago. Um, so they're building this wall, and they get, they're getting, you know, certain sections done, and they've got certain doors closed. And the enemies that were surrounding Jerusalem saw this happening, and they said, oh, man, this, this city that was vulnerable, we can't go in and attack it anymore, so we need to, like, stop this work. So they were sending people. There were different, different groups around Jerusalem. They were sending people in, and they were trying to distract Nehemiah. They were trying to appeal to him in different ways. They were trying to distract him from what he was doing. And this is what we see in uh, Nehemiah 6, 3. He, does, he says this amazing thing that is so beautiful. He says, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. And it's one of those statements where, like, if you're reading, you could just read right over it and not even get how huge this is. He says, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. He was so focused. He was so dialed in on what, what he knew God had brought him there to do to serve these people. That he said, I won't be distracted. I won't be distracted. Guys, we know other stories like David, right? It, you know, we see in scripture, it says all the kings went down for battle and this particular time of the year, but David didn't go down for battle. He wasn't where he was supposed to be, and what happened? He got distracted, and he failed. Nehemiah is a beautiful example of, man, he knew what God had brought him there to do, and he stuck to it. He did not let himself be dis- distracted. And um, when we, we kind of talked about this a couple weeks ago, but, you know, sometimes our focus needs more focus. <laughs> Famous Jackie Chan movie. But when we are called to a job, when we're called to a people, when God burdens our heart for certain people, we need to be where he wants us. And we need to not let ourselves get distracted. So it's a beautiful story. And um, Nehemiah and Ezra basically go on to to change Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple and the wall. and, uh, And it's a beautiful thing. And God used them mightily. But what do we have to take out of this in terms of making others greater? Making others greater. A couple of things I just want to uh, leave you guys with. Number one, it's so easy, and, and I'm guilty of this too. Before, before I said yes to Christ and surrendered my life to him, I did go to church. I did go to church on occasion. And my attitude was, you know, the church and the ministers and all of that stuff, that's where ministry takes place. That's where ministry is happening. Boy, was I wrong. We are all ministers. We are all ministers. A pastor has no more sacred calling or job than any of you where God has placed you, being able to impact others' lives, lead men and women of of integrity, being the hands and feet of Christ in the world around us. We are not differentiating between ministry and non-ministry or the sacred and the sacred and the secular. We are differentiating between the sacred and the profane. Sacred and the profane. 
None of us is in secular work. When I was um, a service manager, during, while I was in Bible college in Colorado Springs, I got to be the service manager at this, uh, this uh, garage. And, uh, man, that's a rough business, right? It's a rough business. Um, I really enjoyed my time there, but I had my, I had my, like, my line to get into the conversation about my faith because you have to, you know, get them to invite it, right? You got to them, get them to invite it. And so I would tell them, man, Colorado's amazing. I never imagined that it would be so amazing. And, of course, they would respond, you know, our customers would respond by asking, well, are you, are you not from here? And I would say, no, I'm from the East Coast. And they would say, oh, why are you here? Oh, well, <laughs> I'm glad you asked. I just moved here to go to Bible school, you know, and, and so it was beautiful. Like, I mean, I got to share my faith with so many people. And I know you have to be careful in this culture, in our, in our. Um, I, I don't even feel like we're in a post-Christian culture. I feel like we're in an anti-Christian culture. And so I know that we have to be careful. But we all are ministers. What I love about the story is that Nehemiah is not a priest. Nehemiah is is he man he he has an incredible job he has a job where he has been able to display his character and the king has come to trust him but he's not a priest he's not a, a, a trained minister and yet God uses him to absolutely change the course of history in Israel it's beautiful we're all ministers we're all ministers number two Nehemiah felt the pathos of his people. Nehemiah felt the pathos of his people, the passion, the emotion. He's there. He felt burdened. He couldn't not go. He couldn't not go to Jerusalem because he was burdened. He saw his people in need. When you see need in people's lives around you, do you feel the, the, the passion, the emotion of their hurt? of their pain. There's so much need around us, right? I'm sure most of us passed homeless people on this side of the street on the way in. We have so much that we can give and to offer. And I'm not saying that we need to go give something to every person on the street. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that so much goes so wrong in so many lives in so many ways. None of us has a heart big enough to, to meet every need of every person. There's only one aggregate of human suffering, and that's the heart of our Father, who loves each of those people way more than we ever could. And what he does is he breaks it down, and he distributes it, and he says, he gives some to you, and he gives some to me, burdens for people groups, for people People in need, hurting people. What I want to challenge you this evening is have you asked God, what is the portion he wants you to carry? Loving people around you, your community. Maybe it's a volunteering at, at a, uh, a safe house or a, a homeless shelter. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's just a family that you know that's going through a really hard time and they just need prayer and encouragement. It could be that. We prioritize others, make more of them and less of ourselves. Next thing is that he pondered in proximity. Nehemiah pondered in proximity. What do I mean by this? 
he was one man, right? His, he had two hands and, and, and going all the way to Jerusalem, and yeah, he could have jumped in there, but his two extra hands wasn't really going to make that big of a difference, right? He could have justified it. He could have said, I don't need to go. But he went. Aligning his life with God's plan and getting close to the need. He went to Jerusalem. He got close to the need. He made all the difference in the world. We have to get close to the need. We have to get close to the need of those around us. Um, there's some really beautiful um, research. Recently, a friend of mine who's a pastor, um, he's a black pastor here in Denver. I love this guy. He is way smarter than I will ever, ever, ever be. But he has done some awesome work in his, in his master's thesis about how the closer that we get together, the more empathy we experience. When, when, I, when our proximity is close, I experience empathy. And so maybe we just need to step out and get closer to those in need. When I was in Colorado Springs, um, you know, you get there and, and immediately the idea is like, you want to go jump into ministry really quickly. And I, I learned about this church for the homeless that meets behind Antler's Hotel under this overpass. And every Thursday night, they would bring all this food that Walmart donated and, and they would feed like 200 homeless folks. And uh, I went there and it was hard at first, right? It was hard. And as I got to know Stacy and Gary and Cowboy and some of these guys that were coming around every week, I started to realize something. When we put the food out, these guys jumped behind the line. They put on gloves and they served the other homeless. Sometimes they didn't even get a meal. And I realized, man, if these guys have margin in their life to give, don't I? But I never would have saw that unless I stepped out and got close to the need. It changed my life, experience there and being with those people. And lastly, he avoided the paralysis of pessimism. He avoided the paralysis of pessimism. Think about it. How many times have you been on a street corner, you see a homeless person, and, and I'm not saying that's the only need, right? I mean, there, there are a million different needs. Every human life has different needs, right? So let's think about that. But... Um, it's easy to come to a place, and I know that I've been there, where the need is so great, and the thought is, I can't make that big of a difference. And if that's the case, I, I, I freeze and I pause, and I, I'm like, well, you know, I, I can't really get involved because I can't really make that big of a difference. Who am I? Think about uh, Nehemiah. He absolutely could have had that attitude. He could have said, these are two hands. There are people down there that can handle building the wall. But God didn't want to use his hands. He wanted to use his heart and his mind. And so what we have to do is we have to stay out of this attitude of pessimism that, you know, uh, we can't really make a difference in their life. Or, or who am I? Or, or God can't really use me. Because he can and he wants to and he does. A.W. Tozer, God is looking for people through which he can do the impossible. It's not for us to solve everybody's problems or take care of everybody's needs. However, it is important for us to ask God, what is my portion? 
endless. And at the end of the day, in obedience and dying to ourself every day to make others greater in our life, to bank him up, we could pray. Father, what a beautiful story. Nehemiah never had to go to Jerusalem. I was just talking with somebody last week about this very question. Does God need me? Do you need me to go somewhere? You are the God of the universe. You created this earth. No, you don't need me. But you're calling me. You're calling me. That's the, does God need me? That's the wrong question to ask. God, would you help us to have an attitude where we can ask the right questions? Who are you calling me to? Who are you calling me to? God, I pray for each person here this evening. Would you um, just put a person, a a people group, a family, whatever, a a burden on our hearts. God, we know that you're calling us out. We're not here to just play church. God, you're calling us to a broken, hurting world that desperately needs your love, and we can't love them in our own flesh, and we need you. We need you. So God, we just invite you this evening, God, would you burden our hearts? I remember the first time I heard about Flora and the sweet girls in Kenya, God, and we went out there. God, we didn't have much to give, but through us, you changed their lives. God, would you make us men and women who are are, are ready to charge forward toward what you've called us to do, God, that we would go boldly, that we would go boldly to that place, whatever it is, maybe you're calling us to step outside of our comfort zone and and go talk to somebody. And it's hard because I get social anxiety and it's hard for me to introduce myself or, or to say hello and but maybe that's what you're calling me to do and I know that if I do it, if I step into it, you're gonna strengthen me. Strengthen us tonight, Father, to be difference makers in this world. To love our neighbor as we love ourselves. God, that we would make more of others and less of ourselves. In Jesus' name.